You want the good news, you want the bad news. I don't like either one of those options. Your words are super wise, man. You are a prophet. You deserve a prophet. You do whatever you want. Who am I to tell you what to do? But you're a psychologist. Well, I know less than you do. You're making me a better parent and a better wife, and thank God you're on the radio. What planet are you on? I don't buy any of that stuff. You know, I was looking for a deeper answer. What are you talking about? You make my afternoon really fun. Enjoy ya. You're about the most exciting thing I have right now. <laughs> now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. I didn't understand why my mom usually had to go through one, two, three of our names. There were four of us kids, and my mom would go, Michael, uh, Mary, Mary, Raymond, before she got to me. Usually averaged about 2.6 names before she got to me. When we had the 10 kids at home, I averaged about four names before I got to the right kid. And they knew this. Well, I've noticed now, now that the kids uh, are gone and have one left living at home, I keep saying Alexa when I mean Siri. So I'm getting my robot servant names mixed up. Alexa, uh, uh, Odessa, Agnesa, Amanda. It's happening. It's happening a lot. I thought it would be done when the, would ki- when the kids left. Thank you for joining me here on The Doctor is In. The variant of The Doctor is In is E-Person Monday. I had to find a way to address a certain percentage of the uh, E-Persons. That we get, and of course, I'm very diligent about saying e-person. Every once in a while, I slip into saying email, but that's uh, patriarchal. It is uh, linguistically insensitive, so have to say e-person. And eventually, I'm going to get rid of the person because the second syllable has son in it, s-o-n, which is male, and again, just insensitive. And I, I don't want to be insensitive, so it'll be e-people Monday at some point here um but we'll get to those shortly this this was from a survey done a while back i don't know if these findings are still close to reality i suspect so but this was a survey done at university of texas they surveyed 1500 americans 18 years or older and released this 89% of those surveyed agree, quote, All things being equal, it is better for children to be raised in a household that has a married mother and father. I don't know what those stats would be now. I would imagine they're less because the relentless pounding of our culture that says, Hey, marriage, mom, dad, kids, traditional setup, old, patriarchal, oppressive, get rid of it, one option, not the best option, just an option among others, and many people believe it's not even a good option among others, and as a matter of fact, millennials under age 34 more are living together than are married, and more are having children out of wedlock than in wedlock. So I would imagine some of those, but still it would be overwhelming. Only 12% described marriage as a, quote, old-fashioned 
outmoded institution. So this is an example of when you pay attention to the opinion shapers of our culture, whether it's media, whether it's Hollywood, universities, when you pay attention to them, you think you're just way off, way out there. Nobody thinks like you. When in fact, uh, a lot of the realistic traditions that people have uh, die hard. See what else we got here. Uh, 93% of married Americans say that they would marry their spouses again. Well, I, I mean, I would. She's older now, but I mean, okay, if I, you know, when I got married at age 31, uh, she was 26. So if I say I'd have to marry her again, well, I, I guess so, but I, I probably would look really odd being with somebody that much older than me. Uh, <clears throat> the proportion of, American, of Americans who are in stable, quote, very happy first marriages has dropped 20 percentage points since 1973. Mm-hmm. Who are most likely to be in the stable, happy first marriages? College educated. They're about twice as likely as high school dropouts. There was an article in First Things, a wonderfully, uh, wonderful journey, uh, journey, a journal about society and the intersection of our morality, our politics with faith. They made the observation in an article once that said the opinion shapers of our culture are jettisoning the traditions, the morals, the stability, the institutions that kept our culture functioning reasonably well. And I'm not, I'm not some Pollyanna who looks back idealistically and says, oh, those were the days. No, they had their own problems too. But by and large, there was more of a moral unification in the culture. And the point that the article made in First Things was that the changes, in other words, living together is every bit as good as marriage. Or if you if you choose certain lifestyle, that's every bit as good as every other lifestyle. No religion or religion equal. No problem. Now, the college educated have, have not followed that breakdown in traditions like those who have much less education and have much more fragmented lives, more difficult lives. So, there was the irony there. The opinion makers and the movers and the shakers of our culture are saying, here, we've got new and improved ways to live. Jettison those old ways. But they haven't jettisoned the old ways. The impact has been on the lower socioeconomic or educational classes who struggle with some of this stuff. The college-educated are about twice as likely to have good first marriages as high school dropouts. The very religious are also twice as likely as those who are only slightly or not at all religious. People who marry directly without first cohabitating are also twice as likely to succeed in marriage. You see, all of those are the exact opposite 
of what you're hearing from all of these supposed intelligentsia and movers and shakers of the culture voices that say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter, you're religious, not religious, it doesn't have any impact on whether your marriage succeeds, it doesn't really matter if you live together, you don't live together, that doesn't matter. Yes, it does, that's what the research says. Well, this is fascinating. What do you think the best age to get married is? Well, you know, you get, got to get into your 30s. You know, you know who you are in your 30s. You're 34, 35, 36. You know who you are. You know, you live with somebody. You get to know them. That's the best way to do it. Not according to statistics. Very early age marriages, teenagers, those are at high risk. That's true. There's just too much immaturity involved there and too many marriages for the wrong reasons. The most successful age for marriage, statistically, in other words, lasting marriage, not the 30s, the mid-20s. Quote, this is again from the study, when the quality of marriages is taking into account first marriages of persons in their mid-20s emerge as distinctly more successful than those entered into either earlier or later in life. Interesting, isn't it? Well, you can understand the earlier, right? What might it be about the later? Oh, perhaps you get more set in your ways. You're used to making your own decisions and not having to, to work it out with another person in your life. It could be that, quote-unquote, the later marriages are second marriages. A lot of those. And second marriages have a, a higher failure rate than first marriages. 94% of Americans agree divorce is a serious national problem. Well, if you look at the statistics, it's a terrible national problem. Because single moms struggle. Uh, the higher percentage of single moms in poverty. Much higher percentage of kids coming from broken homes being raised by their moms. Many moms, single moms are heroic. But it's still tough. It's really tough. Um think society would be better off if divorces were harder to get. I agree with that. Remember, see, this this is always so much of what the supposed smart ideas are. Way back with no-fault divorce, when it got on momentum, the philosophy was, this is good. This is good. We won't have rancor. We won't have ill will. We won't have these battles in marriage. You know, a lot of those battles keep they keep people staying in marriages that uh, they're not happy marriages. And so, if we have no fault divorce, we'll all just we'll all just separate amicably. That was the philosophy. Divorce exploded after that. I've been around long enough to just see that so many of society's philosophies on the better way to live, predicting. The way it's going to turn out, we're 180 degrees wrong. What else we got here? This is interesting. 73% surveyed support a one-year waiting period to give a chance for the couple to reconsider their decision. Ooh. Mm-hmm. All right, what else we got here? More than three-fifths of ever-divorced Americans say they wish they or their spouse had worked harder to save the marriage. That's interesting. There are some marriages that are very pathological. You know this. There's alcoholism. There's serious abuse. There's multiple adulterous relationships. 
But most marriages fail or separate or collapse because I don't really like you anymore. I don't like your personality. I don't like who you are. I don't like the way you are. I don't like the way you talk. That's much of it. Men are more likely to place the blame on themselves. Hmm. 35% of ex-husbands say they wish they'd have worked harder. 21% of ex-wives say they wish they would have worked harder. All right, I gotta, I gotta get done here to get to the break, but I wanna, this is fascinating. Once again, divorce rates among college educated have declined by half since their peak in the 1970s. Separate study by a sociologist named Stephen Martin said this is the divorce divide. College educated Americans are undoubtedly the principal consumers of the new social science that divorce hurts kids and that living together doesn't reduce the risk of divorce. Probably surprised to hear some of that stuff, aren't you? Yeah, so maybe the takeaway is that you don't necessarily feel so alone totally in the culture because there are a lot of traditions that have worked so very, very well to keep the glue of the culture together, to keep the guardrails up for people who want to to go astray morally and take people with them. And there's still a lot of people who believe this, um, but our culture is now one where if you think a certain way, uh, you're going to have to climb some obstacles to express it, and you're probably going to have some fear about expressing it. All right, come back. I will dive into, didn't say tackle, do violent. I will dive into our E-persons. Join Father John Hedges for 5 p.m. Mass at Our Lady of Fatima Shrine in Riverview, Tuesday, February 20th, the feast day of Saints Jacinta and Francisco. Receive a plenary indulgence under church guidelines. Fellowship follows the Mass. Call 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. That's 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola encourages us in the sixth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits to practice much examination when we are experiencing spiritual desolation. We may find ourselves in the struggle of spiritual desolation, uncertain as to how it even began. Practicing much examination is to go within our hearts and ask, when did this desolation begin? Instead of distracting ourselves to avoid the difficulty of going within, Practicing much examination redirects us from diversion and causes us to look at the source of the spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The much examination that Ignatius counsels here directly counters such flight into diversion. In the time of the spiritual desolation itself, we interiorly stop and ask, What is happening in my heart? Am I in spiritual desolation? What action will help me to reject it? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, 
Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. I was going to join a uh, condescension club. We have a rule. It's very. We have our very first rule. Uh, the rule is complex, and I and I really don't think you'd understand it, even if I explained it slowly to you. Condescension club. This comes from a dear lady. She's called the show before. I love her insights. She's she's a fascinating spirit, at least from what I can tell and the interactions I've had with her. Hello, Dr. Ray. I join you with my frustration about the speech police. Yeah, I've, I've, gotten, I've gotten some emails every so often. Somebody will call in and I'll just say, well, thank you, dear, for calling. Or I'll say, hello, how are you? Things are going good for you. And I'll, I'll have some kind of, well, just a generic kind of soft name like that. And people call in and say, don't do that. That's insulting. I'm thinking to myself, this, this used to be a very common way of speaking, and it wasn't always meant to demean. It was just kind of a natural, well, thanks, sweetheart, I'd appreciate that. But, of course, is exactly what I said, the, the opinion makers and the shakers saying you're not allowed to do that. And I, and I say the speech police are all over the place. They don't want you to talk in any way that you're not allowed to talk. So, she says, I join you, I join you with my frustration about the speech police. Do you think that mean people, this is interesting, mean people interpret the gesture as an emotional vulnerability and use the rejection to put the other piece and back, person back in their heels. I, I've seen that. I, I, I've not had it happen to me too much. I would imagine, given there, there's a certain stubbornness in me that says, don't, don't tell me how I have to talk. If you don't like it, you don't like it. Okay, I got that. But don't force it upon me that I have to talk in a certain way, especially if not if I'm not being abusive or nasty. Now some might say, but you are being abusive or nasty. And I want to say, how so? How is that? Well, because I think it is. Well, you can think it is, but is it objectively? I'll give you an example of how extreme this can be. Many, many years ago, I worked at a mental health center. A couple of my female colleagues were coming down the hallway. And I was coming the other way. I said, hi, ladies. Immediately, the one said, I don't see ladies here. In kind of an abrupt, sort of scolding tone. Now, I had two options. I could have said, oh, I'm sorry. I could have said, I didn't say this, but I could have said, and this is the danger when you think of something too quickly and you know you better shut your mouth. Sorry about that, estrogen Americans. But I didn't. I just said, oh, okay, well, hi. That's what I said. She said, Dr. K said, I enjoy being called pet names, even pet names, even by people with whom I'm interacting only briefly. It's true. I, I go to the airport, especially down south. You know, the ladies behind the counter... Ooh, I shouldn't have said ladies, huh? hope they don't know I'm saying that. The female person types behind the counter, they're, they're, they'll quickly say, well, thank you, sweetheart. 
talking to me. And I'll say, you're welcome. And I love it. It's nice. It's sweet. She says, it implies that they find me to be a pleasant person who can be trusted with a compliment about my demeanor. She says, I hope it means I'm displaying Christ through my speech and behavior. Well, Dr. K, I don't know if they could extrapolate from that much for me ordering a ticket. But I do say things like, you know how you know you're getting old? Because they ask you for your identity. I can hand them my license. Says, you know how you know you're getting old? When you look at your driver's license picture and you say, you know, that's not a bad picture. And they usually laugh. She says, ooh, this is interesting. I, I don't know if I'd go this far, Dr. K, but it's a nice thought. I speculate that the habit of using pet names with others comes from a heart softened by the Holy Spirit. My dear, sweet, faithful mother's favorite phrase for others was, Honey, dear. Oh, oh for two. Honey and dear in the same phrase? Hmm. Well, Dr. K, I think you're a sweetheart. <laughs> My little granddaughter. I got granddaughters three and granddaughters five. Little three year old is uh, Caroline. I call her Care Care. And I say, Thank you, baby. And she goes, I'm not a baby. Like that. Her sister, Rosie's five. I go, Thank you, baby. She goes, Okay, Pops. She calls me Pops. And I say to her, Dr. Pops to you, Rosie. But I notice that as Rosie gets older and more mature, this is an interesting little parallel. I don't want to. I don't want to draw too much interpretation, but I am a psychologist. I do interpret everything. As she gets older, she's more confident in who she is. Little Care Care says, I'm not a baby. So she takes it very literal. You're calling me a baby. I'm a big girl. I'm three. Rosie, who is obviously two years older, is okay with it. Now, I do call her Rosalie or Rosalou or Rosie Sue. And she goes, Pops, Rose. Just plain Rose. So now I just call her just plain Rose. I go, I just plain Rose. And she's getting old enough, she's starting to giggle. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a sign of the maturity there. <laughs> All righty. Let me go to the next one that is on... Just uh, go to the. I have to mark them down the dates on my phone because uh, I get all confused here. What's this one? I have a 28-year-old and 24-year-old, both daughters, that have completely lost their Catholic faith. I raised them with great Catholic educations, the sacraments, daily rosary, scapular, and as soon as they became independent in college, yeah. 50 to 85%, I've heard the stats, leave the faith in college. They abandon their Catholic faith. When I try to talk to them logically, they become angry, militant. And we are at great risk of estrangement. You don't, you don't want that here, Mom. In the meantime, I pray and sacrifice for them and let the conversation be. Am I doing the right thing? Well, first of all, I'm not the one to judge whether you're doing the right thing. However... I would say that that question reveals the nervousness that, well, should, shouldn't I continue to, to try to reach out to them, to teach them the faith, to tell them the faith, to talk them the faith? And am I, am I derelict in my duty as a parent and as a Christian if I don't? No, you're not. Their reaction is telling you back off. 
simply have a beautiful relationship with them. Avoid the faith stuff. They know where you stand. You raised them. Avoid the faith stuff. If they bring it up, then you can address it quietly, calmly. But short of that, it's not a topic right now of any kind of conversation because they get upset. Their attitude is, don't push it on me, mother. All right. You're doing just fine being at peace with your two daughters, having the best relationship you can have. So perhaps at some point, they become a little softer toward this. They look back on the way they were raised. Then they might come around. But for now, read the cues, Mama. new government study out oh this is fascinating it said that 50 percent of all adults would fail an eighth grade math exam that may be true but i would bet that the other 70 percent of us would totally knock it out of the water dear dr ray i have a question about a problem with a cousin of mine. We were close since I was a kid. She's very wealthy. She's helped me with some things, which I appreciate very much. A year ago, she gave me a fair amount of money for an online course. I have two degrees, but it's something else I wanted to do. She gave me the money. I had an emergency, and I used her money for something else. I was afraid to tell her at first because she gets very angry at me, curses at me. Now, my question here is the speculation that she would get very angry at me or this is her response to me when I tell her something that she doesn't want to hear. I did tell her that I used the money for something else and she refuses to forgive me told her I'm deeply sorry, I love her, and I asked her to forgive me. She doesn't, she doesn't even answer me anymore. She said that I deliberately lied to her no matter what I say. All right. She believes you misused the money. She gave it to you for a certain purpose. You kept quiet about it for a while, and then you finally told her, and she feels you misused her. Now, I think for me, the question would be, has that happened before? Has she given you money before? And in her opinion, you didn't use it well. If this is the only time, this is the one time she gave you money, and she felt like, okay, uh, you, you, got, you got me to give you this money so it could improve your education, and then you turned around and whatever your emergency was. And, and she may not have even thought it was an emergency, too. That's the other thing. You called it an emergency. She might not have. So, if that's the case, then my guess would be there's probably a lot of things in your relationship that are rough edges. 
And this was just a final blow to the relationship as she sees it. Because typically that's kind of the way it is. When you have a relationship breaking event like this that seems to quote unquote come out of nowhere, oftentimes it doesn't come out of nowhere. There has been a very subtle, sometimes very quiet buildup of resentments or hurts or offenses. And the final one cracked the relationship. After my grandmother died, oh, see now, okay, 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 okay. I asked her for help with something for my grandmother. Her aunt. She didn't do it. And I didn't stay mad, even though I was very hurt. Well, first of all, why would you be very hurt? So you took a personal. You asked her, will you help me do this for your aunt? She said, no. Okay. Why are you hurt? It's one thing to say, well, I wish she would have helped. And I didn't like that she didn't help. But when you say, I was really hurt, you're taking a personal. How is that any kind of personal? Because I asked her. Well, you asked her, but the issue, the matter was the aunt, the grandma, your grandma, who passed away, and you asked for something, probably regarding the funeral, but she she didn't feel so inclined. I can't understand her refusal to forgive me. It may not be a refusal to forgive you. It may be, we've had our difficulties and whether you realize it or not, I, I don't like some of the things that have gone on between us. And therefore, I've just decided uh, I'm going to be about my business and you be about yours. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that may explain it. She knows my struggles. And she brags about how well off she is. It doesn't mean she has to give me anything. But I didn't mean to hurt her. What should I do? I can't afford to give her back the money. That's what I would have said. Give her back her money. But maybe one day. Well, you don't have to give it back in one piece. You go to her and you'd say, I would like to start paying you back that money. How about, can I give you $50 a month? I don't want your money. Well, I would like to do that. So I'm going to mail you a check and you do with it what you wish. Or if you can give her a hundred. Pay it off in a little over a year. I think that's the thing to do. That doesn't mean she's going to forgive you. Doesn't mean she's going to say, well, okay, we're, we're fine now. But you will at least be making recompense. If you say, I don't have the money. Yeah, you may not have 1500 bucks. Not all at once. You probably got 50, don't you? 25? Something like that. That's so often. I've seen that so, so, so very often. guy came to me once. He's a fellow I knew. And he was hurting. He had some bad situations. So I gave him some money. A fair amount. And he made no effort whatsoever. After saying, I want to pay you with interest. I want to pay you with interest. I'll give it a... And he never did at all. And I let it go. And I forgot it. And it was an interesting thing, too, because he was a businessman. And I was giving him referrals for his company that he does. 
Well, I stopped, obviously stopped giving him referrals. So he lost a lot more money in business than if he would have just paid me back. And I would have been completely satisfied if he would have said, can I just give you $100 a month till this is paid off? That had been fine with me. The, the kicker was no attempt to pay it back. And I know there are those in your life, and I'm hoping you're not one of them, that owe people money. And you say, well, I don't have it right now. When I have it, go to them. Say, I'd, I'd like to set up a payment schedule because I want to pay this back. It's the right thing to do. You need to do that, especially if they know that you take a lot of pride in being Catholic. That word was used deliberately, folks. Because they'll look at that and say, oh, I guess this is, this is how Catholics behave, huh? Right or wrong, that's what they're probably going to think. So, even if you don't have the money... What can you do to pay it back slowly? There, there are several people in my life that I've helped out financially. And, and they're, oh, right up front, the commitment was, I'm going to pay you back, I'm going to pay you back, I'm going to pay you back. Never paid me back. Even when they pulled out of their financial hardship and even when they got somewhat comfortable, there was never an attempt to say, you know, I owe you that money from five years ago. Here. Okie dokie. Dr. Ray. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Ray Grandy. Program Doctor is in variant of the program E Person Monday. Program is a uh, co-production of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and Ave Maria Radio Communications there in Ann Arbor. My producer man is Andrew Kruchek. My website, drray.com, has um, sixteen or seventeen of uh, my books on it, uh, most of which are at reduced prices and. Uh, you can get them signed if that means anything to you. It doesn't, but if you if you want that, signed and reduced prices. There's books there on uh, on uh, child rearing, discipline, self confidence as a parent, standing strong against the culture, marriage, faith, emotions, emotions, um, anger, frustration, those kinds of things. They're all there. Hi, Doctor Ray. Standard female. Appalachian. We have an almost 21-year-old son. He had a job. It's interesting. He had a job, past tense. And what seemed a good prayer life and relationships. He recently met a girl. And all that has changed. No job. Hmm. Okay, he's 21. I'm going to assume he's living at home here. And spends all of his waking hours with her. 
well, obviously he has no job. He he may be kind of living off of some of her largesse. He disrespects our simple rule to be home at a decent hour. Instead, he comes home after 3 a.m. He wakes up the whole home pretty much. He has shown a negative influence on our youngest daughter. There's a lot of tension in the home. We've had daily talks with him, and it seems to go well. Then he does it all over again. Well, I guess mom would mean... It seems to go well means what? That he listens? That he nods and says, I know, I know, I'll try to do better. Is, is that what it means? Because it's not going well if he could just continues to do what he wishes, and it sounds like he does, and it sounds like she's become his whole world. And this so often happens. When young people meet someone, whether that someone is good for them or not, their emotions are so strong that they overwhelm everything else. Their judgment, their other relationships, their responsible conduct. It's not uncommon. He admitted he is struggling to have a prayer life anymore. He does go to Holy Mass and confessions regularly. However, we've noticed that confession is farther apart than usual. Now, I don't know this, Mom, but my guess would be he's physical with her. So, therefore, that's conflicting with the morals that he was raised with. And so, he doesn't want to give up the physical. So, he's given up the faith. That's very, very common. Interestingly enough, he still seems to have baby conflict about it. A lot of, a lot of young adults, don't have any, they don't have any conflict about it. I'm just going to live morally the way I want. Well, sorry for the loose word morally. I'm going to live however I want. And, yeah, religion's not going to get in the way. There's a growing tension in our home. We've spoken to him and continue to be loving. He seems okay. Well, again, what, what do you mean by seems okay? Listening, nodding. Agreeing at the moment. And then once he's with the girl, that all changes. I don't think it changes. I think he's just being agreeable with you for the moment. And he may even think you have a point. But but the emotional attachment or the physical attachment to this girl overwhelms everything else. How do we handle this? We don't want to kick him out. Okay. That's your decision. But my question would be, why don't you want to kick him out? You've said he's coming home at all hours. Tension in the home. Uh, It's a horrible influence on his younger sister. He has no job. So why wouldn't you want to say you need to to find your own place? Because you know what's going to happen. You know it. Well, he's going to go live with his girlfriend. Well... For all intents and purposes, Bob, he's probably living with his girlfriend now. So, so if you say, okay, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not for for your own personal. We're not going to do that. Okay. What'd you do? Well, this is what Mom said. We've told him the doors will be locked after twelve thirty a.m. and he just sleeps in his car. He's making a statement. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to use this as a base of operations. And, see, I don't know where 
there's no there's no identifying information here uh, where they live. So you can't sleep in your car if you live in Minnesota, even in Ohio right now, even in Birmingham right now. You can't live in your car because it's too cold. So he's a, he's saying I'm just going to do what I want to do, and if you make my life a little tougher, I'll just kind of work my way around it. What are you doing about the no job? He's 21. Is he just deciding I don't want to work because that will interfere with my time with my girlfriend? It looks like this is a case of I'm completely and totally involved with her, whether that's infatuation, whether it's major physical contact, whatever is the explanation. And that overwhelms every other aspect of his life. And you as parents have to decide at age 21 with no job and being disruptive in your home what you're going to do about it. Now, my guess is, and I base this upon having seen these situations thousands of times, if he continues on this present course, you're, you're going to get fed up. You will have had enough. And then, then you will act and say, here's our conditions, and if you can't meet him, you have to live somewhere else. But how long that will be, who knows. And it sounds like you and your husband are on the same page, but I can't know that. So if you're somewhat at odds regarding this, then it's going to be a longer time before you both come to the realization that something's got to give here. I would love him. And I, I would, personally, I, I wouldn't shun the girlfriend. I'd invite her to the house, have her come around. Obviously, they're living in ways that are dramatically counter to what you would like for them and the way you raised them, but um, right now that's the reality. And you're not condoning anything by simply having a relationship with her. You're not saying, well, as long as I think they're getting physical, I'm not even going to talk to her. What good will that do you? You're not saying, because I'm kind to her and I am interested in who she is and her life that I'm saying I agree with the way you're living with my son. You're not saying that. Well, she'll interpret it that way. Well, she can interpret it any way she wants to interpret it. So, my suggestion here, Mom, is uh, you decide what your terms are going to be. And uh, at this moment, uh, he's very much attached to this girl. And if you shun her, you're going to lose him. So, consider being warm to her. Dr. Ray. Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, oh, Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, Dr. Ray, Dr. Dr. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Food for the Journey, Sister Ann Shield. No, we would avoid a lot of difficult arguments just 
spouting off at the mouth, as we sometimes say. Just ask the Lord, give me the words to say. Maybe I'm rightfully angry, but if I just shout and yell and scream, what good is that going to be? Brothers and sisters, God can give us much more control over our anger, over our fear, over our language. And so whenever you're in a tight spot, just stop for a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? God is good. I don't mean he's going to say words that will come down from heaven. But if you pause just for a moment, you'll get hold of yourself and you may well get a thought that you didn't have before. And sometimes it's just quiet, but it's enough to bring down the steam. And then you think what is really right to say here. You might be justifiably angry. How do we respect the other person while we're correcting them? Please, brothers and sisters, let us open our hearts to God in those moments. Sister Anne Shields gives you food for the journey weekday mornings at 645 and again at 1130 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. Dr. Agarandi, thanks for joining me for this last segment of The Doctor Is In on this E-Person Monday. Treat to be with you. This comes from a Ph.D., MSN. She's a professor, an emeritus professor of philosophy at a leading university. Doctor, I was listening today when you were describing children adopted from foster care and their difficulties, as a rule, compared to biological children who did not experience the disruption. You cautioned the family not to judge their value based on the present disruption in the lives of the children. Yeah, typically when somebody wants to adopt a child who has either been removed by children's services or has had multiple foster placements, I, I, I caution them. I say, be ready now. Uh, if you have bio kids and your biological child rearing is a relatively smooth experience, be ready now. There's the, the chances are this could definitely be a bumpier journey. All right, not not to say only because the kids have had a a, a sketchy psychological history, but because. In many cases, they were abused in the womb. And by abuse, I mean drugs and alcohol. She says this. When I was eight and a half years old, I was in foster care for six months. My siblings, I'm going to assume this means biological siblings, ten, five and a half, two and a half, and myself, were fostered by a lady who took us in. She was a bit overwhelmed. She had one disabled child, but she was pretty stable, gentle, and kind. Her stability has carried me through many uneasy situations. My point is that while I was only with her six months and returned to the chaos of a schizophrenic mother and an alcohol-using foster father 
there was planted in my heart that it was possible to find and have a stable life. To this day, 70 years later, I'm grateful to that dear lady who took us in and allowed me to see another kind of living that I could strive for and achieve. My sister and I try to find her unsuccessfully, but God knows the gift she gave us. Dr. Ray, I just wanted to infirm the encouragement you gave to adoptive parents. If I could be guided by only six months of loving stability, how much more could other children be able to find their way with God's blessing in an adoptive home? Bev. Yeah, one of the points I was making to the caller was even if at the end of your adoptive journey with these formerly foster kids the kids go astray or they live a a rather disrupted, fragmented kind of young adult existence. You showed them something. You showed them what love is like. You showed them what stability is like. You showed them what a family life could be. They have an alternative viewpoint. So that even as young adults, and and their life fragmentation could last for two, three decades. When they decide or when they come to the point where they, they finally hit their limit of living the way they're living, they have an option, a viewpoint, a stability that they were raised with. And they can look back on and say, I understand now. That was a better way. But if if they didn't have that, how do you know what the better way is? So that's what I oftentimes tell parents who who adopt a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a ten-year-old, and and the (laughs) the adoption is bumpy. It's real bumpy. And at the end of it all, it looks to have been a quote-unquote failure because the kid heads off in a direction where you look back and say, well, I thought our love and our stability could could straighten this kid out, and it apparently didn't. doesn't mean that. I hear from a lot of people like Bev here who say, I saw another side of living. And as my own life unfolded, I realized that was a better way to live. I was given something to to look at. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Doctor's Inn. I appreciate the company. Tomorrow, good Lord permitting, we'll uh, do a little interchanging, little I was going to say interface, but inter-ear, to talk with you. And I appreciate my producer man, Andrew Kruchek, over there. And his two lovely children, John and Audrey Rose. So thank you so much. Walk with God, so that when you meet Him someday, you will have been walking with Him. Won't be a stranger to you. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook and Instagram.
The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 